I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I know that sounds a little redundant because I just said that in the intro, but in my defense, that is pre-recorded. So this is present me, like current me, welcoming everyone to the show. So welcome back to another episode. So just to provide a quick like recap of my week, it was pretty good. I know that's a really basic word to use, but it really encompasses all of the aspects of my week so far. Like it's just been good. You know, like there's been some days that have been, we're not even that far into the week, but there's been some days that have been worse than others and they've been really good. So I think that kind of averages out to good, right? I think that averages out to pretty good. Anyways, it's going to be Thursday when this episode is released. So we're nearing the end. I've been managing. That's what I always say when someone asks how school is going for me. So I think everything's just been going okay. Because I think as we near the testing season with, you know, students primarily with AP exams and finals just approaching like really, really rapidly, we kind of reach some sort of balance as far as schoolwork and assignments are concerned, at least for me though. Like you would think in the weeks prior to the commencement of exam season, one would be super anxious trying to pace their studying and everything. But I don't know. Personally, this is a period of tranquility for me. This is one of my favorite parts of the year, like not too close to the actual beginning mark of testing season, but close enough to the point where you realize you still have time left to organize yourself and get into that determined mindset. I hope that made sense. Anyways, one thing in particular I did this week pretty recently was my final AP seminar presentation. There's like a few components that actually contribute to your AP score that you'll receive in the summer, one of which is the IMP or the Individual Media Presentation. I love that class so much. Like researching and being able to talk is one of my favorite things to do ever, hence why this podcast exists. So yeah, seminar is almost like an extension of that passion of mine, except with the time restriction. You know, converse to this show, I can only speak for six to eight minutes during my individual presentation, so... Moving on, this previously mentioned IMP that I presented the other day was centered around the inequities posed by sport. And if anyone was wondering, yes, it went well, I think I did fine. I moved my hands around an insane amount, but it was good. It was good. So since there was a handful of other people presenting within that class period, I got the choice to either stay and continue watching or to just leave early and do whatever. I chose the first option as I was curious to see what findings the other people had discovered through their research, and it was super enjoyable. I learned a lot about the world of sport, which was the AP theme for this year, sports. But something in particular that I took away from this class period and just the AP seminar course as a whole that day was, wow, there are a lot of societal issues. I know that's an obvious fact. My podcast is literally centered around that. I have over 30 episodes of me talking about those issues, but there's just a lot more than many people exist than what appears at the surface. So many people are oppressed within this country, so much so to the point that they constitute these marginalized communities as a whole, and not even solely within America, like on a global scale. So this realization I made during my 7th period AP seminar class drew me to question how others view oppression, more specifically, those who are not a part of marginalized groups, those who aren't targeted. And what I originally intended to quickly research on Google became the basis of today's episode. So if you've read this episode's title already, which you probably have, you know that the focus today will be on oppression, and not only that, but how the overall view of it can shift, varying from person to person. So continue listening to hear me delve into just that what oppression is, how it's viewed in a contrasting manner between those who are targeted and those who aren't, and how a specifically harmful view of oppression can manifest itself into this modern day and age. So to provide some background on what oppression is, I wanted to reference a definition from the National Museum of African American History and Culture based on their article entitled Social Identities and Systems of Repression, which I encourage everyone to read, by the way. 
From that article, they stated that oppression refers to a combination of prejudice and institutional power that creates a system that regularly and severely discriminates against some groups and benefits other groups. Meaning, oppression exists on the basis of a power structure. The presence of the power structure is so integral for oppression to even exist in the first place. I know I just repeated that, but I think that's a good way to put it. For example, if equity existed, like perfectly existed, and it was implemented in today's society, nobody would be oppressed because everybody would be on the same level. Everyone would be viewed the same way, and everybody would have the same level of power. Meaning, no one would be able to oppress the other because we're at the same level. However, we do not exist in a perfect world, meaning equity does not exist. So to allude to that power structure, the groups that would be benefited would be the ones that are considered the top, the most powerful. And at least in America, like do- like domestically speaking within this country, it was founded on the backs of indigenous peoples and slaves that were imported from Africa, the West Coast primarily, but just black slaves, indigenous peoples, it was founded on their backs. And using the word backs, that kind of alludes to the fact that they were on the bottom of this social hierarchy, this power structure. And those who used their labor to their advantage were the dominant power power groups, the people that would be at the top of the social hierarchy, the the white slave owners, just to provide a good example, something that you can put into context. So to reiterate, through this definition, oppression is referring to those who are at the bottom of the power structure, those who have been minorities for, historically speaking, for a very long time, those that do not have institutional power over the people at the top. This can be primarily observed through racial and ethnic prejudice. For example, through the Chinese Exclusion Act, circa 1882, which I mentioned in a past episode, the Holocaust, the transatlantic slave trade, slavery as a whole, and the fact that history shows that these groups, these racial groups have been discriminated against in the past and that they continue to be discriminated against in the present day, that consistency is what alludes to the presence of oppression. And I wanted to include another perspective on oppression. Oppression means you suffer because the dominant groups denigrates your self-worth, your abilities, your intelligence, and your right to be different and affirmed in your difference. Now, I pulled this definition from a paper I read, which was written by the National Consortium of Interpreter Education Centers. And although it was centered around how ableism, specifically targeting those that are deaf, the more general points that they made are still applicable to this topic. Because, again, oppression isn't something experienced by one sole racial or ethnic group. It's pretty extensive and really ingrained in society as a whole. It's based on a power structure, meaning it's the founding basis of our system. For starters, one's view of oppression can differ significantly based on their amount of privilege. So a good example, the way that a white person would view oppression is significantly different than the way a black person would, or really any other person of color, a member of these marginalized communities, because that presence of a power structure means that white people will view some things differently than black people, because one's a target and one's not targeted. And of course, this is just a general idea of how people view oppression. This isn't me saying that every single white person or black person views it in this specific light. It's just a general idea. So for example, on the more extreme end of the more privileged person's view of oppression, it's seen as a power tool for those that are ignorant, not just those that are privileged in general, just those that are more ignorant. It's seen as a power tool, power tool, an accessory, something that can be used in an argument, something that can be used to belittle or strengthen one's side or one's opinion. But conversely, the vast majority of the minority population views oppression as something that is traumatizing, something very unfavorable. It's something that nobody should want to experience. 
It's really important here to reiterate the fact that oppression isn't just felt on or experienced on an individual basis. It's something that is systemic. It's generational. And I know I say that all the time. It's kind of like a mantra of this show when I'm talking about race issues. But in general, that is a great way to explain it. Oppression isn't just someone calling you a slur. Obviously, that's a great example of it. But oppression is much bigger. It's a huge concept. It's something that is so generational that it causes a lot of minority populations, marginalized communities to fixate their social identities around that. And to read from the opening paragraph of that Smithsonian Museum article that I referenced earlier, whether we are aware of it or not, we are all assigned multiple social identities. Within each category, there's a hierarchy, a social status with dominant and non-dominant groups. So to build off of what I previously mentioned, these non-dominant groups are constituted by minorities. Those are members of marginalized communities, whether it's racial, whether through racial prejudice or ethnic, religious. There are so many different types of oppression that there's only one person that's truly at the top of the highest power structure, that is the white male. So I think that's a really good way to, I think that definition really encompassed all of the elements of oppression. It affects our social identities as human beings. But this oppression doesn't exist solely on the basis of race. While that is a major one, there are those that discriminate against individuals based on gender identity, on one's sex, so sexism as a whole. There's discrimination against those with certain religious affiliations, for example, Islamophobia. There's discrimination centered around Asian Americans, indigenous peoples, just the list of targeted groups is extensive. And as oppression incites a shift in social identity, many have been taught to avoid acting a certain way, to fixate their personalities around a racial stereotype, for example, to adhere to what society deems is acceptable or normal. And those who don't act a certain way face social alienation because of this societally constructed view of people of color, of black people, of indigenous people, of Asian people. That's what causes so many to change their identities or social identities their personalities, their overall character because of this existence of oppression. Meaning one thing that all of these marginalized groups have in common is that it causes those of us that deviate from the stereotype to alter our personalities through what we do, how we present ourselves, etc., And again, to reference that article from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, as with race, dominant members can bestow benefits to members they deem quote-unquote normal or limit opportunities to members that fall into the quote-unquote other categories. And I believe that this excerpt from the article perfectly encompasses the elements of oppression. Those that are viewed as inferior by race, so the non-dominant groups, are told to assimilate with what is seen as preferred. What is the dominant group? What is the dominant group doing? What activities do they participate in? What do they look like? And these marginalized communities are forced to assimilate themselves into that culture, quote-unquote culture, because really, there's not really much of a culture. There's It's kind of just social norms that these groups have established for themselves. So a good example of this is the relationship between the white male, a dominant group, and the black woman, a non-dominant group. The societally constructed, stereotypical view of the black woman is loud, aggressive, unkempt, just very an awful negative stereotype. And those black women that deviate from that, which is a good amount of the population, are viewed in a negative light. They're alienated. Social alienation is experienced by a large amount of them. Because the dominant racial group in this example, let's say the ignorant, like an ignorant white person, would want the black woman to act a stereotype. Like modern day minstrelsy, to kind of make a fool of themselves through being a stereotype that is seen as negative. And this isn't to say that somebody can't be loud because they're a black woman. This isn't to say that somebody can't stand their ground because they're a black woman. But those that aren't viewed within the confines of the negative stereotype 
are seen as inferior, are seen as weird, are seen as someone that needs to be more more like their race, which doesn't exist because black is not a monolith. So given that the societally constructed view of the black woman is angry and like aggressive all the time and irrational, like that is something that, of course, a, a good amount of the population, the black woman population does not really confine themselves in that like very narrow view of black women. So given that a lot of people don't see themselves that way that are black women, the dominant racial group, mem- ignorant members of that dominant racial group, which is white, they see them in a negative light. They see that they need to change them, even though their personalities are already established. A particular demonstration of this is when ignorant white people will tell black women that they are acting white, just black people in general, this is more of a general view now, that they're acting white if they don't act in a negative, stereotypical way, which is just, again, alienation. If they don't act according to what the societally constructed stereotype is, they're viewed as weird, which is oppression in itself. And this, again, ties into oppression because you are oppressed if you fit the societal view, and then you're also oppressed if you don't fit it through microaggressions. It's really hard to win. So in a way, oppression can be considered to be viewed as an accessory to the dominant racial group, to the ignorant members, should I specify, of those dominant racial groups, whereas it's viewed as something that is traumatic, that nobody should want to experience from the perspective of those that are in minority groups, that are in marginalized communities, which brings me to my next topic point. So this harmful view of oppression as some kind of accessory has manifested itself into many different elements of life, with one of the most notorious elements being social media. A key example of this is tone-deaf activism, meaning oppression is seen as an accessory, so much so by performative activists that it's included in people's activism, while people of color have to actually experience it. A good example of this in particular was back when the Black Lives Matter movement was gaining traction for the first time around May, May, June-ish of 2020. And even now we can see it draw some parallels, but to focus on May, June 2020, when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, many performative activists would repost graphic, graphic videos of him being brutally murdered and think that it was okay in the name of activism and in the name of social justice, when really it was just traumatic, a very traumatic experience that a lot of people of color, black people specifically, I'm sorry, in this example, a lot of black people had to experience over and over and over on everyone's Instagram story from May through June, honestly, like May through August of 2020. It was really harmful to so many black people to have to see black people that looked like their family members, their uncles, their aunts, their sisters, their brothers get killed at the hands of police officers, at the hands of the people that are sworn to protect us over and over graphically on Instagram stories. It's traumatic. And that is a key example of how many people, especially performative activists in this case, use oppression as an accessory to strengthen their, to strengthen how people view them as an activist, quote unquote activist. Because in this case, and in in general, activism doesn't mean reposting people getting murdered by policemen to prove a point. It means taking the initiative to do research, to hear the opinions of people of color, to see how these issues affect actual people of color in real life. Another example of the use of oppression as an accessory was people that viewed Black Lives Matter as a trend, as something to put in their bio, as something to just quickly brush aside after it was no longer as popular as it was at the peak of the movement. A good example was people speaking over the voices of actual Black people in real life and especially on social media. I think a way that this kind of manifests itself into 
popular platforms like TikTok, for example, was the forcing of random influencers to speak up on the movement who really did not want to or who were not knowledgeable enough on the movement to actually contribute anything substantial to it. A lot of influencers were completely canceled or like a lot of normal people in general, not even just social media stars and influencers, were viewed in such a negative light for not speaking up about the movement, for not posting a black square, for not posting somebody getting brutally murdered on their Instagram story. This might not seem like it at the surface level, but it's a really great example of people using oppression as an accessory. Because while people were harassing and accusing these people of not speaking up about the movement, they were actively ignoring black voices on these issues pertain to black people which is performative in itself and it's very it's just the opposite of genuine because it's counterproductive when you force and harass someone to speak about something that they either don't care about or are not very knowledgeable on it's counterproductive because now they're not spreading substantial information to help inform and impact others in a positive way meaning people's oppression was used as a way to give people brownie points to make them seem more woke, more socially aware of these social justice issues that plague a lot of people. One, it's just counterproductive because the people that it's plaguing are the people being ignored by performative activists, by the ignorant that swear that they are woke and socially aware when really their behaviors and actions are the opposite of that. Another demonstration of this use of oppression as an accessory is people's growing obsession with slurs. And when I say people, I'm referring to those who are members of communities that are relatively unoppressed. For example, a TikTok trend emerged within the past couple months where people would say, I started off thinking that this would be a two-week break from school and now I can say this many slurs, basically referencing people who initially were just planning to leave school, you know, amidst COVID for a two-week break and then ended up finding that they were, like, realizing their actual, like, sexuality, that they are part of a certain community, like the LGBTQ plus community. I said that really fast, meaning that they could now say, like, these slurs that are targeting the LGBTQ plus community. And it was a very weird trend because people were now fixating their entire personalities around how many slurs they could say, which is not, that is not oppression. That is just using it in a way that is tokenizing oppression, which is very, very harmful. Because what stemmed from this trend was another trend where people would say, I'm illegal in like 70 countries or in this this many countries, basically referring to the amount of countries where homophobia was really that really exists like heavily there where it's like a crime to be gay stuff like that it came off as very tone deaf again alluding to tone deaf activism because these people claimed to be allies with these communities but then they're making a joking matter out of something that they've never experienced which is not a coping mechanism because it doesn't affect them imagine how those people that are in those countries feel when somebody who is living in a place that is relatively again they're like homophobia does exist here i Like, I completely understand that. But to say, like, to joke about existing in a country where homophobia is persistent and then kind of juxtapose that with people that live in countries where you could be killed and jailed, like, immediately for being gay. Like, it felt very tone deaf. And again, this alludes to the fact that many people view oppression as an accessory. They tokenize it. They use it to their personal benefit. They use it to seem more woke when really it's a lot more extensive than that. Its implications are extensive and it can be traumatic for a lot of communities, whether racial communities or communities in terms of like gender. It can be very, very harmful for them. 
And again, it's just weird because the people that are members of these marginalized communities that know, they know how traumatic and how just extensive the implication of these slurs are, for example, can be, which is why a lot of people don't have these slurs in their daily vernacular. So it's very odd when people kind of tokenize these slurs, tokenize oppression and use it as an accessory to appear more woke or more socially active when it's just very weird. And this ties into the last point I wanted to make. A lot of people tend to view oppression as a competition. This is typically coming from those who are solely performative in their activism efforts because the relatively unoppressed, meaning people that, for example, are white and um, in the LGBTQ plus community, this isn't to say that people that are gay, for example, aren't oppressed in this country because they definitely are. That's something that we can all observe here. But it is to say that they are white before they have their sexuality. White is something that you cannot, you can't shake your race. If you look white, you are white. So people that are white, they can disguise their sexuality, for example. Black people cannot do that. We cannot walk into the street and not look black because we are black. It's based on phenotype. That's just how it is. We can't alter our race. But you can disguise your sexuality, meaning that you are white before you are a member of these oppressed, marginalized communities. And by that, I mean the relatively unoppressed, meaning people that are white, for example. Always a lot of ignorant white people, I mean, I have to specify, are are looking to rack up oppression points, quote unquote oppression points, because they view it as an accessory. They view oppression as a competition. This comparison of oppression, meaning is it worse to be gay or to be black, is really, really harmful because at the end of the day, there are many press groups within this country, within the world. It's something that we see on a global scale. And by trying to make it a competition, you are tokenizing oppression, using it as an accessory, which is clearly a negative thing. So the overarching theme here is that oppression is viewed differently depending on who you are, what communities, marginalized communities especially, you are a part of. And by using oppression as a token, by using it as an accessory, all that it does is desensitize people to these very traumatic elements of oppression, such as the use of slurs, police brutality, etc. It seems as if oppression, using it as an accessory, is almost romanticized by people the way that it's so prevalent within social media and the world in general, meaning it is integral for people to do their own research, to listen to the voices of those in marginalized communities, to learn what is wrong and what is right, and to really be a lot less tone deaf in their activism efforts. I think that's a really great way to start with a solution to this issue. Because again, oppression is extensive. Its implications are immense, and it takes listening to the those that are in actually oppressed and marginalized communities to learn something. With that being said, this marks the end of today's episode. I hope you were able to learn something new about the duality of oppression and how people's view of it differs greatly in this modern day and age. Be sure to keep up with the podcast at a little Persp podcast on Instagram and follow it on the newly created TikTok, which is simply at a little perspective. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next Thursday for a new episode here on a little perspective. <laughs>